Good morning, everyone. Welcome here. Pastor Terry's away this week. He's away this weekend and uh, coming back to start off the fall with us to kick off fall. So in the meantime, I'm pinch hitting today for him. And I'll finish up the series we've called Parables of Purpose. If you've uh, gone to our website, which I'm sure most of you have, you'll see on the front page of our website that we've been trying to drive home three core purpose statements here at Temple. We want to uh, love God passionately, we want to serve our neighbors generously, and we want to grow in Christ intentionally. Those are three really important things for us here. And Pastor Terry has spoken on those uh, first two things in the last couple of weeks. He asked me while he was away if I would come forward and talk about growing in Christ intentionally, which has a very special place in my heart. I want to start with an illustration. Caroline and I were away on vacation this summer, and while we were away, we went to visit a church where Oscar Murillo was speaking. Oscar is an internationally known missionary. He is part of uh, Nairobi Chapel in Kenya, and that's a fascinating church because that church alone has planted 350 churches around Kenya and the world, 350 and Oscar began by telling us a story about a railway guard. And that railway guard was given the responsibility of watching a bridge. Imagine there's a bridge, but here's the thing about it. It only had a single track. So the railway guard had to watch the bridge to ensure that only one train passed on the bridge at any one time. Because they wanted to avoid, obviously, a collision. And late one night, the emergency phone began to ring. The guard got up, answered the phone, he picked it up, and he could hear someone on the other end of the phone yelling at him. Stop the train, they were yelling. Stop the train, it's too heavy. The bridge will collapse. It's too heavy. And he could actually, as he was listening to those words, he could hear the train starting to approach the bridge. So immediately he grabbed his lantern and he headed out to the tracks. And he got to the tracks and he waved and he waved and he waved his lantern. But to his horror, the train blew right past him, and under the heavy load, the bridge collapsed, the train and all its passengers went down into the gorge below. The railway guard was later summoned to court and charged with negligence of duty. And when the judge asked him what he did to prevent the tragedy, he explained that he ran out to the track and that he waved and waved and waved his lantern in the darkness but the train didn't stop. He pled not guilty, and mercifully, at the end of the trial, he was allowed to go free. As he left the courthouse, some people said they could hear him mumbling, I waved the lamp. I waved the lamp. But, and here's the clincher, the simple truth was that his lamp was never lit. The command for God's people all through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is that they be a light in a dark world. 
that they live abundant and fruitful lives. They were to stand out. They were to shine brightly and show people the way to live lives that were godly and purposeful. In his most famous sermon, The Beatitudes, Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see. See what? See your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Later in that same sermon, Jesus puts an exclamation mark on this very point. He says, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Every good tree, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by your fruits, you will know them. We are called to shine as Christians, and we're called to be fruit producers, to produce good fruit. And this, Jesus says, glorifies our Father in heaven. The passage that I want to talk about this morning is on the screen behind me, and if if you want to follow along in the Bible you brought along or on your cell phone, it's the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 6 to 9. Luke 13, 6 to 9. It's called the parable of the fig tree. Let me read it for you. It's a really short parable. Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but he did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of his vineyard, for three years I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Let's pray. Father, in this small parable this morning, we are reminded about the importance of fruit bearing, the importance that we are to live lives that are fruitful. Father, I want to pray this morning that you'll give us sensitive hearts, that your Holy Spirit would press in on who we are this morning and help us to better understand what it means to follow the Son, follow Jesus with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love others around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. So that little parable is a parable of grace and judgment. In its original setting, there's uh, no doubt that the message was directed at a Jewish audience. Um, remember, Jesus first went to his own people. He went to the Jews. They were the main group he was initially concentrated on. The mission outside of Israel to the Gentiles grew in the years mostly following Jesus' death and resurrection. And the pieces of the parable line up with Jesus speaking to a Jewish audience. The vineyard, which is talked about and found elsewhere in Scripture, is representative of the nation of Israel. The fig tree represents individuals within that nation. The owner of the vineyard represents the father, and Jesus is the caretaker. His ministry to Israel was approximately three years, and in the face of unfaithful Israel, the owner says, my people are not bearing fruit. They're going in the wrong direction. They're heading for disaster. Cut this unfruitful tree down. It's of no use. But in response here, 
the caretaker asks for more time. More time to nurture and to care for the tree, hoping, hoping it'll finally bear fruit. And on a simple level, that's it. That's this parable. But what's really important about this parable is it doesn't just speak to an ancient, the ancient Israel, ancient nation of Israel. It's obvious in the Gospel of Luke that this passage was meant to speak to the church and make to speak to us individually today. So this morning, I just want to look at three simple things from the passage. I want to talk first about what it means for us to bear fruit. What does that even mean? What does it mean for us to bear fruit? Second, I want to look at how I become a more fruitful person. Is there a process? What is that process? How do I become a more fruitful person? And then third, I want to ask us all, how is our story, how is your story going to end? So first, what does it mean to bear fruit? I just removed a cherry tree from my backyard. And normally I'd be kind of sad about that. But you know how many cherries that tree produced in the last 10 years? Three. Three cherries. Now, three cherries in 10 years, if my health or life depended on that cherry tree, that tree would have been absolutely useless. So with the windstorms we had recently, when they came along and blew the tree down, I thought, now is the time to cut this sideways cherry tree off at the roots and get rid of it. Yeah, fruitfulness is an agricultural term. We all understand it. The people in Jesus' audience understood it. It's still understood today. The farmers and those that produce all kinds of agricultural products around us understand that. And it's something I think we kind of intuitively know. What does it mean to bear fruit? But I want to tell you really crisply what it means to bear fruit in the Bible, because there's a simple definition for this. In the Bible, bearing fruit means living a godly life. That's bearing fruit, living a godly life. The emphasis, as Pastor Terry told us last week, it's not just on stating that I believe certain things. I believe this or I believe that. The emphasis often with Jesus throughout the Bible, though beliefs are foundational and they're very important, what matters most is how those beliefs translate into action. How do they motivate us and move us to act in certain ways? So in Psalm 1-3, which is part of a whole wisdom tradition in the, ancient, um, in, the, in the Hebrew Scriptures, you have a godly person described as a tree planted by streams of living water, yielding its fruit in its season. And then you'll notice that just a couple of weeks ago, if you were here for the message, in the parable of the soils, Jesus says, the seed that fell on good soil represents those who truly heard and understood God's word and produced a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as had been planted. So there's a sense of fruitfulness here, living a godly life. But based on Jesus' words elsewhere, I think we can even go beyond a general definition of living a godly life, because Jesus summarizes for us what godly living is. Godly living, he says, is primarily motivated by love. Look at what he says in the Great Commandment. Here's the little passage. The Great Commandment's found in Matthew 22, 37 to 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Godly living is motivated by love. Love for God, love for others. That's at the very core for Jesus. We're called to live lives of love, loving God and loving others. And then we can find all kinds of specific examples of this. Other passages in the Bible give us um, great examples of fruitful living. For example, we might ask, well, what does it mean to love God and love others? And you could look to Paul, for example, who summarizes godly living when he lists some of what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul says, bearing fruit means acting in these ways with the help of the Holy Spirit. You're more loving. You're more joyful. You're more peaceful. You're more patient. You're more kind. You're good. You're faithful. You're gentle. You're self-controlled. So you can see, if we think of what is bearing fruit, it's living a godly life. What is living a godly life? Loving God and others. Are there examples in the Bible? Tons of them. Here are some just in one list. So you begin to see what it, what's involved in all of this. This morning, I want to ask you to think about this. Are you bearing fruit? Are you becoming a more loving person? Are you loving God and loving others, including those who are really difficult to love? And what about the fruit of the Spirit? Just think about those qualities that are behind me. Do you see yourself as someone who desires those things? With the help of the Holy Spirit, can you become a more loving, joyful, peaceful, good, patient, kind, faithful, and gentle and self-controlled person? Can you see those things? So that's the first point I want to make. What does it mean to bear fruit? That's what it looks like. And living fruitful lives is at the very heart of what God wants for his people. My second point this morning is, but then you might ask me, how? How do I become a more fruitful person? And over my years in ministry, I will tell you, I've had that question more times than I can count. Because I think I and a lot of you wonder, okay, I want to take a next step. What does that look like? I want to become a more loving person. I want to bear fruit in my life. Can you tell me what I need to do? And I, I thought I'd answer that from a couple of angles this morning because I think there's an immediate answer to that, something you can do immediately, right now. And then there's a more of a longer-term answer to that question. So let me start with the immediate one. If you ask me right now, this minute, I want to be a more loving person, I want to bear fruit, what can I do? The answer to that might be this. Just do the next thing in love. Just do the next thing in love. That's exactly what I think the early church father, St. Augustine, meant when he said, love God and do whatever you please. But the second part of that quote is really important. Because he said, the soul trained in love for God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. Love God and do what you please. So there's a real sense that no matter who you are, and we could just pick out a name out there, that, you know, whether it's Brenda or Theo, whether whoever, Ben, it doesn't matter. Any one of us at this moment can live a bare fruit in our lives by just saying, I'm going to do the next thing in love. The soul trained in love will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. In other words, if you've been trained in love, you would do nothing to offend God. So just do the next thing in love. 
So right now, in any situation you find yourself, the next thing comes along. That's an answer. That's one angle I want to look at it. That's the immediate thing. But I think there's something about over the long haul. What does it mean to become more loving? What does it mean to bear fruit over time? So in other words, how do we do what Augustine says in his quote, train our souls in love? What does it look like to train our souls in love? so that we instinctively do the next thing in love. What does that process look like? And, you know, one of the gifts that Pastor Terry, our lead pastor, has brought to Temple is what he, I think, would uh, call a practice-based faith. We chose Terry off a pile of applications because Terry Norris wants you to live out your faith every day. It's a practice-based faith. You'll notice every single time Terry preaches, every single time, he tries to suggest for you some kind of spiritual practice that you can do or try. And he always, always, almost always ends his sermons um, with those practices. Or you'll notice on Facebook that every week he puts up a video called The Practice Minute. And that's why he loves to ask the question, by the way, too, knowing what you know now how will you live? The reason that Terry does that is that he and many others in the church today have come to realize the best ways to grow intentionally in Christ is to regularly practice spiritual exercises. That's what people have come to realize. Now, just think about that for a second. All of you, think about how practice is so important to learning any craft. We could pick anyone, playing guitar, Okay, I'm a terrible guitar player, but I knew how to play a few chords. If I practiced, and people say it takes about 10,000 hours to perfect a skill, you will get better over time. Why is it that the church can sometimes say, I believe in Jesus, and then have very little practice afterwards? Why is that? We're called to practice. Whether the practice is reading scripture or prayer or fasting or spending time with God in silence, It's been shown, it's been shown that over time, these soul training practices will shape us so that we'll become more and more like Jesus. So, not in the instant, but over time, if you want to become more like Jesus and you want to grow in Christ intentionally, I'd suggest that all of us start some soul training exercises. And just think think of those practices as a way you can open up space in your life for God's grace to shape you. Think of it that way. Okay, so we looked at two areas so far. First, we looked at what is a fruitful life? What does it mean? And second, we've considered how over time we can participate in different practices that'll help us bear fruit. But I want to move on to a third and and final point here because I want to ask the question that's staring us in the face in the parable, how will your story end? Because at the very end of this short parable, more than anything, one thing jumped right out at me. I'm going to put the parable up again for us just so we can see it. And I'm going to let me read it since it's such a short parable. Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. He went to look for fruit on it but didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should, we, why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it for one more year. I'll dig around it and fertilize it. 
If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. You know what really stood out for me at the end of that parable, more than anything else, is the mercy and the patience of God. Instead of removing the fruitless tree, we're told for a season, God graciously gives the caretaker a chance to cultivate and nourish and to fertilize and do everything he can to make that tree bear fruit. You know, this passage is very similar to a passage in 2 Peter 3, 8, and 9 that says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's one of God's most beautiful and compassionate qualities. He's he's incredibly merciful, patiently waiting for people to turn to him. And that's on full display here in this parable. The caretaker of the vineyard asks for more time, and he's granted more time. The God we find in Scripture is patient. He also gives us time to turn and to trust him. He's also fair. He knows who we are from the inside out. He knows your heart. He knows your intentions. Preparing this message, I was reminded of God's mercy when I thought back to my pastoral days in London. When I was a pastor there, um, I went to a hospital at a request of a friend, and I went there to see somebody I'd never met before, but he was really sick. And to tell you the truth, I wasn't really prepared for how bad things really were. When he got there, there was a middle-aged guy, let's call him Bill, who was lying in bed, and Bill's relative said that he needed someone to talk with, so they called me at the church. So I made myself available, and I went to see him. And Bill must have been one really tough guy growing up because, like, he was a biker, but he had tattoos everywhere, still had long, thin hair. And that, for Bill, was all a thing of the past. By the time I saw him, he was literally wasting away. And he sensed, Bill sensed, I don't have much time left. This is why you should have your annual checkup, he said to me. Bill, like so many of us, had unfinished business, and he also had a lot of unanswered questions. He had been hardened by life's experiences. Cancer had just ravaged his body. His eyes were cloudy. His breathing was labored. His face was pale and hollowed out. And his questions, like the cancer, just kept growing inside of him. For years, the thought of surrendering his life to to Jesus was a joke for Bill. Now he seemed much more curious and open. In a strange way, Bill and I kind of hit it off. And once I helped him understand I wasn't some holier-than-thou religious freak, we got talking. And we talked, and Bill began to think out loud about some of the really important questions that he had in his life, the kind of stuff that keeps you up at night. Like, what is life really all about? And how do I know what's true? What do I do with my regrets and my mistakes? What about other religions, he asked me? What about UFOs? What will happen to those that I leave behind? What is waiting for me around the corner, he thought, when I die? Those are the kinds of questions Bill had. And I saw Bill for the first time on a Friday. Bill died the following Tuesday. The day before he died, in the midst of all of his questions, he said he was ready to trust Jesus. 
And he said yes to him. Bill jumped through a window of grace just before he died. And he experienced the relentless and merciful love of a patient God. No matter what we do, you can't sidestep the huge warning that's in this little parable. Without a question, grace and mercy are on full display. God is kind. God is patient. But there will come a time in this passage for judgment. God wants us to live fruitful lives. That's at the very heart of what God wants for His people. Fruitful lives, though, require repentance. They require us turning away from our sin, aligning our lives with God, aligning ourselves with His direction, with His principles, and surrendering our lives with Him. The path to fruitfulness begins with saying yes to Jesus. That's where Jesus says it all starts. Begin by saying yes to me, and then by trusting the Son, turning away from those things that are holding you back, you can embrace a new way of life and a life that's now centered on Jesus. When you think about it, we're kind of living in a window of grace right now. It's almost like the extra year that's talked about in the parable. That's where we are right now. Jesus says to us, though, there's going to come a day when the ark door is going to close and judgment will come. So in light of that, let me end with this thought. This morning, if you've already committed yourself to following Jesus, will you focus on your growth and fruitfulness as his apprentice? Because living fruitful lives is at the very heart of what God wants for his people. And if you have not yet trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, will you? Will you once and for all make up a choice or make the choice to go in with both feet, to jump through the window of grace into the safe arms of a patient and merciful God? Let's pray. Father in heaven, this simple little parable points out some really important and clear things to us. I pray that this morning will be good soil, soil in which the Word of God falls and produces fruit. Father, I pray for those of us that are stuck somewhat in mediocrity or want to take a next step, that you'll help us, that you'll motivate us through your grace and the Holy Spirit to realign our desires and follow you. And Father, help us to take your warning seriously. We want to be found in the end as fruit-bearing people. In Jesus' name, amen.